We're entering into a new section of the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. And it has to do with the power of the king. The power of King Jesus is put on display. There's more than one kind of power. Have you ever considered how there are different kinds of power? For instance, there's power in terms of there being energy or strength, the ability to do physical work. When I was a kid, I loved watching the show He-Man. You know, this show was full of these rippling, muscle-bound characters. These guys obviously could do a lot of work with those muscles. They were powerful. And then, of course, He-Man would become even more powerful when he would take his magic sword and raise it above his head and say, by the power of Grayskull. And then he'd say, I have the power. And, of course, he would turn from muscle-bound Prince Adam into muscle-bound He-Man with an outfit on that is clearly embarrassing to think about uh, these days. And so there's, there's the power in the form of energy or strength. And there's also the form of power or the idea of power that is embodied in authority or influence. Maybe the ability to tell other people what to do and use force to make it happen if necessary. So these types of power are different from one another. Arguably, the most powerful man in the world is the President of the United States. He has more influence and more authority, if you will, than, than anyone else in the world. Yet at the same time, I think anyone in this room could probably beat him in an arm wrestling competition. Because, well, he has authority form of power. He doesn't have a lot of physical strength. Uh, you think about the state of the union in which that authority, that power is on display. Where the president is addressing the most powerful people in our country and, and arguably in the world. And behind him is the second most powerful person in our country, the vice president, and the third most powerful person in our, in our nation, the Speaker of the House. It's always interesting to me that no matter who the president is, no matter who their political opponents are, as they walk down the, the aisle in or out of the State of the Union, they've got all of these people just clamoring to shake their hands, to pat them on the back, to, to say a word to them. People craving power. Political rivals even reaching over each other to be near that power of the position of the president. People can easily become overwhelmed and drunk with power. We see that over and over and over again. Makes me think of a story that I heard of, of a little boy that he came home from, he was let out from school every day at the same time, but his mother was perplexed because some days he would get home 10 minutes after school was out. Other days he would get home 30 or 40 minutes after school was out. And she finally asked him, uh, Jimmy, what is going on that you are getting home at all these different times? Are you doing something that you shouldn't be doing on your way home from school? 
is there something I need to know about? And he said, no, it has everything to do with the cars. It has everything to do with the cars. And so his mom asked, what do you mean by that? He said, well, Billy is down at the corner as the crossing guard. And when we're walking home, he makes us all wait at the corner until a car comes along so that he can step out and stop the car and let us go across. So apparently Billy was a little drunk with his power of being the crossing guard. That kind of authority can really go to your head really easily. We look here this morning as we enter into Matthew 8 at astonishing applications of power. Speaking specifically of astonishing applications of the power of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The first astonishing application of Jesus' power comes in an interaction that he has with an outcast of society. You may recall we just wrapped up Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we see something unique in Matthew in which he's specifically saying this event comes after that event. You might understand that Matthew groups his information, he groups his uh, accounts that he gives of Jesus' life by theme. And so many times they're not in chronological order. But here we do see in verse 1, when he came down from the mountain. So this happens immediately after the Sermon on the Mount. When he, being Jesus, came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof. As I mentioned, lepers were outcasts of society and, and for good reason because whatever the, the skin condition that fell under the category of leprosy, there was a lot of different conditions that could fall under that, it was highly contagious. Leprosy itself was highly contagious and it was a horrible disease, incurable disease to have. You, you might have seen pictures or, or heard of how a leper would easily have their fingers rubbed down to the nubs. And it's because of the fact that the disease would affect the nerve endings in their skin and in their appendages. And, and they would be rubbing their fingers on something and scraping away the skin and scraping away the flesh without even knowing it because the nerves were so damaged. This was a horrendous disease to have and to contract. The Old Testament law actually defined them as being unclean. In other words, they could not participate in the community of Israel and its activities because they were unclean. In fact, they even were required that if a group of people, if, if a if person was coming to walk up to them or if they were walking up to a person, let's say that a leper was sitting on, in a bend in the path and, and, and a group of people were coming around the bend, that leper would be expected to stand up and yell out, unclean, unclean, so that those that were, could possibly come upon them and possibly get close enough to contract their horrible disease would know that is a leper. we got to stay away from them. 
Well, we see that this this outcast of society comes to Jesus, comes near to him, kneels before him. The leper is recognizing the kingship of Jesus. We see the leper's statement of faith. If it's your will, if you only wish, desire to heal me, Jesus, you can do it. You can make it happen. Recognizing the authority of the king over this disease that he had. And the result, Jesus willed it. Jesus did make it happen. Now, as we enter into uh, the, the notes section here where you can write down the points, I want to encourage you to write down at the top of your page, I need to entrust myself to dot, dot, dot. And all of the points that I'll make here this morning will complete that statement. I need to entrust myself to the dot, dot, dot. The first call to entrust yourself to God's power is entrust yourself to the will of the all-powerful Savior. How often does something unclean touch something that is clean and the two end up clean? That's not usually the way it happens. It's usually that the unclean thing affects the clean thing, and now they both are unclean. They both are dirty. So we see here, though, that this unclean man came to Jesus, believing that he had the power to do what he desired. He approached Jesus despite the danger that it would pose to a normal person. He approached Jesus despite how others could have responded to him doing so. And Jesus did desire to make him well. And to do so, he reached out. You see that in the verses? Jesus spanned that gap, that distance that the leper still left between him and Jesus. Jesus reached out and touched him. He bridged the remaining gap. And in the same moment, immediately we're told that he was touched. In that same moment by Jesus, the man was healed. In the same moment that he was touched by Jesus, the man was healed. So what's astonishing about this application of the power of King Jesus? Jesus reached out and touched a person who was considered untouchable. Jesus had no fear of what everyone else feared. Secondly, Jesus healed a leper immediately because he simply desired to do so. He didn't have to put in a request. He didn't have to say, okay, I'll talk to the big guy for you. I'll see what I can do. I'll see if I can pull some strings. Jesus is the big guy. Plain and simple. Now, I remember being at a leadership conference and um, the founder and CEO of Tropicana Orange Juice, I'm sure he's passed away since then, he, he was sharing in, in, a, in an interview on stage about how, um, because he was very uh, active in philanthropy, uh, giving money to different causes, and, and the interviewer asked him, uh, how do, would you suggest someone to make that big ask of someone like yourself who has the resources that can help? And his response was, hit him up. Of course, that caused everyone in the audience to just laugh at the way that he termed this. Hit him up, he said. What do you not have 
yet from God because you haven't asked him yet. Now, this story in no way is a formula for you to get God to do what is astonishing in your life. Okay, by a formula, I mean it's we don't aren't aren't to read this and think, okay, so first I'm supposed to kneel. I'm supposed to get down on my knees and then I'm supposed to say the words, Lord, if you desire, if you will, I know you can do A, B or C. This is this is not a formula that we are to follow. But this this account should encourage you to ask God to make an astonishing application of power in your life. And know in faith that if he desires to, he can do it. You know, I've been a part of a team that was praying for a, a pregnant mother who had been informed by her, her obstetrician that the baby in her womb had a hole in the bottom of its spinal cord, which means spina bifida. And that it was very possible that her young child, once it was born, that it would never be able to walk. And she came to us as an elder team asking us to pray, believing that, that God could solve this problem. The next time she went back to her appointment and an ultrasound was done, there was no hole. That baby never experienced spina bifida from that point forward. I, I, I had a friend in high school, someone that I was very close with, somebody, we were in a car accident together. As a result of that car accident, her femur was broken and ended up being an inch shorter than, it, than her other femur. And she was, uh, had an appointment with the orthopedic doctor to be fitted for a shoe that was going to need to be an inch taller than her other shoe. And she came to my other friend saying, I don't believe that the Lord wants me to have to live this way. I want you to pray for me to be healed. And I can tell you that my friends explained that they watched her femur grow. And all her orthopedic doctor could say was, all I know is your left leg was an inch shorter than your right leg last time I saw you, and now it's not. But even more amazing, I've seen God heal irreconcilable marriages. And the most astonishing thing, I've seen him change the hearts of his hostile enemies to where they were bent, to the point where they bent their knees in repentance and pled for gospel mercy. People who went to bed shaking their fists and hating God and waking up and realizing that they need him more than anything in their life. Well, Matthew goes from explaining Jesus' power displayed for one desperate outcast to explaining it being displayed for another outcast of society. We pick up in verse 5. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he being Jesus, said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, Capernaum is a small town, a small fishing town that's on the west shore of Galilee. It's the home of Peter and many other of Jesus' Galilean disciples. 
as we will learn about later in this passage. And being a centurion, this meant this was a soldier who was over 100 soldiers. He was in charge of 100 soldiers. He's not necessarily a Roman centurion. He very well could have been a, uh, a member of Herod's army uh, there in Judea, up in Galilee. Uh, this would still mean he was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. So the leper was an outcast due to his physical condition. But the centurion is an outcast due to his ethnicity. We see him also, like the leper, addressing Jesus as Lord. And Lord in the Gospel of Matthew carries a lot more significance than just saying, Sir. It's more so along the lines of Matthew's theme of King. One who has authority. And this is most often how Jesus is addressed when addressed as Lord in the Gospel of Matthew. In verse 7, we read Jesus' response here, And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replies to him in verse 8, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, no one in Israel, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. There's only two places where Jesus marvels. In, in the Gospel of Matthew. And that other place where he marvels, he's marveling at people's lack of faith. So for the king to marvel at this centurion, this Gentile centurion's faith, is pretty uh, significant. And he goes on in verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is referencing the banquet feast of the Lamb. This would be Jesus' inauguratory celebration, inaugurating the full experience of the kingdom of heaven one day as a part of the eternal state when all things are made right. And God's covenant relationship with his privileged people began with Abraham and his son Isaac and his son Jacob. And so this is explaining that kingdom banquet in which God's privileged people, beginning with his privileged people of Israel, will be celebrated. But some of those descendants, some of those Jewish descendants of Abraham are going to be left out. And some of us Gentiles, those who, are, who come from east and west, we will be there at that celebratory banquet inaugurating Jesus' eternal reign. We continue in verse 13, and the centurion, to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. What did he believe? He believed that Jesus could say the word and his servant could be healed from any distance. And we see that that's what happened. And the servant was healed at that very moment. 
we, we see Jesus doesn't respond with, how dare you suggest how I use my power? No. He responds with astonishing application of the power of the all-present king. And from this event, I want to encourage you to entrust yourself to the reach of our all-present Savior. So Jesus, we see here, he's approached by this man that the Jews also would have considered to be an, an outcast of society. And Jesus is pleasantly surprised with the man's faith in recognition of Jesus' powerful authority to heal the man's servant from anywhere. And the man's faith was justified by the fact that Jesus was indeed able to heal his servant from any distance. And Jesus says the quiet part out loud when he mentions that Gentiles with faith in Christ would be in heaven one day while unbelieving Jews would be cast out of God's presence. And out of God's presence for eternity means an eternity in hell, where they are described here as being in a place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what's astonishing about this application of the power of King Jesus? First of all, Jesus entertained the request of a Gentile soldier. That's maybe not astonishing to us as Gentiles, but it was astonishing to his Jewish disciples at that time. But secondly, Jesus healed the centurion's servant from a great distance with a word. That is what's astonishing here. And thirdly, Jesus announces that there will be some Gentiles enjoying an eternal relationship with God while some Jews will be cast away from God in hell. You know, uh, one of the games that my family in Tennessee likes to play, uh, aunts and uncles and, and some of our nieces and nephews, is a game called Bang. It's a, it's a uh, Western card game where you receive a different uh, – each person receives a character, and they play the role of that character, and each character kind of has certain abilities and things. But you can also, uh, as these games go, you, can, you draw cards, you have cards in your hand, and the cards that you play down in front of you, that you set in front of you, they are – are the powers that you have additionally. For instance, you need a gun in order to really engage in this game, and, and you, so you, you'll play a gun down in front of you, and different guns have different abilities. They can reach other people around the table, um, further distances and things like that, and you can also put down defensive cards that give you different abilities in order to get a greater distance from that person that might be trying to shoot at you. And I, I know I'm losing you, uh, especially if you haven't played these role-playing card games yourself. I know I'm kind of losing you with this. But the idea here is you have to acquire these abilities in order to use them at just the right time. Jesus' power is unlimited. He doesn't need some special card to be able to play. His power is unlimited. And he is able to do as he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, and with whom he pleases. Jesus' power is unlimited to do as he pleases, when he pleases, where he pleases, and with whom he pleases. Moving on to the third astonishing application of God's power. We read about another person 
that society would have been disappointed with. We read in verse 14, and when Jesus entered Peter's house, as I mentioned, Peter's house is there in Capernaum. This would have been likely, it's understood that this was Jesus' base of operations during his Galilean ministry, uh, that he was was living at Peter's house with Peter's wife and Peter's mother-in-law and Peter's brother as well. We read, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Now, just understand, Jesus didn't heal Peter's mother-in-law so that she could serve him. Like, hey, lady, I need something here. here okay, I'm just going to have to heal you so that you can do this. You know, we often uh, do this with our, our moms or our mothers-in-law, you know, the, the, this quirky kind of love where we say to them, oh, you know, stop doing those dishes. Sit down. Enjoy yourself. You can take care of those later. That's not what this is talking about. This is, this is once again, Matthew groups this event where he does because he is showing something astonishing about Jesus' power. And here it's grouped with the leper and the centurion to show Jesus using his power for someone who society would have been disappointed with. With that, I want to challenge you. Entrust yourself to the care of our compassionate Savior. We see Jesus heals another person of great significance to God, but of little significance to man. Why do I say that? It it, it would have been expected that Peter's mother-in-law would have been up and serving the guests. She would have been basically kind of making a place for herself in the home by being useful. But here she's sick, and we don't know how long she had been sick for, but she's kind of useless. And she's... In that society's view, she would have been kind of a bother. Like, what are you doing here if you're not even able to help, especially with our guest here, to be served? We also see once again that Jesus is described as healing her with the simplest of actions, a touch. And her health is immediately restored, just as it was for the leper and just as it was for the centurion's servant. It was immediately restored, as is the hospitality that she certainly wanted to show. So she was fully healed and able to serve. So what's astonishing about this application of the power of King Jesus? First of all, Jesus attends to the needs of a person who was expected to be serving him. But our Savior did not come to be served, but to serve And ultimately to give his life as a ransom for many, as we will read about in Matthew 20. Secondly, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law with a simple touch, cutting past the symptoms and solving what was the root problem. He didn't just stop and say, well, let me fix that fever for you so that, you know, you can uh, be useful for a few hours. He fixes the problem at its root. He heals her. You know, uh, in our Bible reading plan, I'm going to make a sh- another plug for our Bible reading plan that you can pick up back at the Welcome Center. We are wrapping up 2 Samuel. And in our Bible reading plan, there's a, an individual by the name of Mephibosheth. 
that comes up. And Mephibosheth is the son, the grandson of King Saul, the son of Jonathan. And Jonathan was best friends with David, who became King David. And when Jonathan was still alive and he was recognizing that David was going to be the next king of Israel, the two of them covenanted together. And Jonathan asked David if he would care, take care of his sons after him. And sure enough, with Jonathan's death, Jonathan's son Mephibosheth was alive. But, but in, the, in an unfortunate circumstances, as a young child, Mephibosheth was dropped. And it caused irreparable damage to his legs, causing him to be an invalid, causing him to be crippled for the rest of his life. He was, in many ways, useless. In many ways, he was an outcast because not only was he not able to be helpful, but he was also the son of the son of the previous king. If for all intents and purposes, the next king should have wiped out all of the descendants of the king before him. But, G, but, but David recalled his covenant with his friend Jonathan Mephibosheth's father. And so what did David do? He came and he took Mephibosheth, as weak as he was, as crippled as he was, and he made him as if he were one of his own sons. He gave him a seat at his table. He ate at the king's table, even though as far as the culture went, as far as common wisdom went, he shouldn't have been living. It was because of David's covenant commitment and covenant love for Jonathan, not because of anything that Mephibosheth had to offer. And in the same way, God, his love is a covenant love. God is a covenant-keeping God. Whenever the Old Testament uses the term steadfast love, it's speaking about God's covenant love. And if you have a relationship with God through Christ, you have a relationship with God according to his new covenant that has been inaugurated by Jesus' blood. It is not because of anything that you have to offer. It is not because of anything that you have done. It is not because you are worthy of it. But it is because of God's covenant love for you. And under that type of love, we see Jesus exercise his astonishing power. For Peter's mother-in-law, that really should have been the one serving Jesus. But that's how our Savior works. You know, these, these uh, accounts here of these three people uh, encountering Jesus, the leper and the centurion and Peter's mother-in-law, they, they remind me of the, the, the Aesop fable about the, the blind men that are, are coming down a trail and they run into some obstruction in front of them. And it's an elephant, but they don't know that, and they're blind. And each of them are feeling a different part of this elephant. The one who's feeling the side of the elephant is saying, it's a brick wall. And the one who's feeling the leg of the elephant saying, no, it's a tree with a mighty trunk. And the other one who's feeling the, the, um, the, the nose of the elephant 
is, is the trunk he's feeling is, is saying, no, it's a, it's a huge snake. And the other one is getting flapped in the head by the ears. And he's saying, no, it's like something with a huge wing that's just, just battering me back and forth. Well, obviously, we know, knowing elephants, that they're all describing the same thing. They're just experiencing it a little bit of a different way. And that's what Matthew does when he groups these stories of these three outcasts or not very useful people to society. And he does so to show astonishing applications of the power of the king for those who really had seemingly nothing to offer him except for the opportunity to show his power. We've seen three displays of Jesus' power with an eye to the unnoticed and unwanted. This sort of saving power applied to the unattractive has popped up in the men's Bible study as we study Romans. Specifically, we saw it in Romans 5, where we see in verse 6, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And in verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has a way of showing his astonishing, saving power, partly astonishing because we don't deserve it. And it's when we could have never deserved it that God chose to sacrifice King Jesus for us. So our passage closes with a climactic description of Jesus' similar ministry. And we see in these closing verses, verses 16 and 17, the limitless power of our king. We read, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So we see here the town of Capernaum gets wind of Jesus' power, his power over the results of man's sinful condition, his power over oppressive spirits, his power over debilitating illness. And with the commanding authority of simply a word from Jesus, the demons flee. With the healing power of his healing touch, sickness is reversed. And all this is in fulfillment of prophecy that Jesus would bring healing and deliverance from the impact of our sinful condition. So how do we, as the church family of Harvest, live in God's power today? Now, recall, uh, power can be authority and it can be the ability to make things happen. As far as God's authority, his power and authority, how do we exercise the authority of Christ as a church family? Well, for those of us who are teachers or preachers or small group leaders, first of all, a teacher or a facilitator has no authority in, in, in themselves. God's word has all authority. And only what we communicate that is in complete alignment with God's truth has any authority over the lives of people that we are ministering to. Plain and simple. 
and how do we make use of God's power, his ability to make things happen? How do we experience the power to accomplish God's kingdom work? We recognize this. God does the work. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit get things done. And they do it for his glory and for his kingdom. We are called to be useful vessels for him to use as he get things done. We're called to walk in, in, with him in obedience. We're called to walk with him in truth. We're called to walk with him by his spirit. This means walking in repentance, walking in submission to his authority and his will for our lives. And we get to see God do some astonishing applications of his power as we trust and obey him in faith.